What is a hero? Are they born? Is it in their DNA? Or are heroes created, refined in the fires of trial and adversity? Maybe being a hero is a choice, a choice to be bold, to stand up for what is right, a choice not to wait, but to seek out opportunities to take up the torch of faith and hold it high, no matter the cost. Good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome back to our series in this great series called True Grit, The Beauty of Bravery. And I, and I love this series. Last week, it was such a great start to this series as we're talking about Esther in the Old Testament of the Bible. So here's the question this morning. Here's the question is this. Are heroes born or made? Are heroes born or made? You know, last week we said that every kind of culture and every generation has heroes, like even superheroes that they look to. Like this generation is the Avengers. Everybody's into the Avengers, right? When I was growing up, it was the Justice League and Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman, you know. But, you know, whether you're Greeks, right, in the old times, it was Greek mythology and they're, they're gods, or whether it's in China or Japan or different heroes that they look to. But if you think about that, are, are heroes born or made? Are people born with these different leadership abilities and these different skills to have a following and have different gifts or different talents? Or are they made over time, right? In faithful preparation forwards in those times of struggle to come out on the other side and to be the heroes that they were called to be. And, and what do you look at? And I, and I love, you know, kind of being in this era and growing up and movies now kind of go back and pick up some of the backstories. And it's fun to watch those like Batman Begins and see the struggle like, oh man, here's Bruce Wayne. And does he realize the talents that he has or the gifts that he has or, or Superman or Wonder Woman? Does she know those gifts and then what she was going to do with those gifts? I believe heroes are made. I believe heroes are made. And if you look at those, you know, kind of even in those movies, there comes a time, there comes a crucial moment where all of a sudden they realize, okay, I got this gift, but what am I going to do with it? Am I going to use it just to kind of build my own thing? Or am I going to use it for evil? Or am I going to step in? And am I going to use it to do good? Am I going to use it to save the world? Am I going to use it to make a difference? And everyday heroes have to make those same decisions. Every one of us, right, whether first responders or teachers or parents, right, Christian martyrs throughout the world, there comes a time when every one of us has a defining moment to say, what am I going to do with what I've been given? How am I going to use it? Is it just for me? Is it just for my thing or my benefit? Or am I going to step out and use what I have to make a difference in this world? Heroes are made. And that's what we're going to see even today as God takes an unlikely hero, a young woman, Somebody in scripture you would never think, and God uses her to save his people and to make a huge impact in this world, just like God wants to do through us. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you up with me to the book of Esther. Esther, oh, it's just so good. Esther, back in the Old Testament, if you're turning, it's about midway through the Old Testament, and you got 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, kind of in that area right there, so kind of Find that place, find this short book, but man, how powerful it is. And I want you to dial in with us today. If you don't have a Bible, we got some free Bibles for you in the back. We'll put the scripture on the screen. Or if you have a mobile device, you can access the scripture there and follow along with us as well. Esther, and we're gonna be in chapters three and four today as we unpack the word of God. Now, last week we said this about Esther, some remarkable things because 
Esther is written, right? It doesn't fall like in the middle of the Old Testament. It was actually one of the last books written chronologically. So 460 BC. So it would be toward the end of the Old Testament, which is significant because then there's 400 years of silence, then the Messiah. It's like God is using this book to say, hey, listen, guys, I've got this. (laughs) I'm in control. And throughout the book, you see God's sovereignty. The name God is never mentioned in Esther. It's crazy, right? It's in the Bible and the name God's never mentioned and the word prayer is never mentioned. But what it's saying, the author is writing, hey guys, God is in control. And even when things look bleak or even when things you don't understand, God is in control. What an incredible word for us, right? Maybe in your life, you walked in, you got some struggles, some things that you're facing, you're just kind of going, God, do you see what's happening? God, do you know what's going on? And God's going, I got this. You trust me, you hold on to me. You walk with me. Hang in there. The other thing is it's named for a woman, which is a big deal. There's no other ancient writings that you're going to see in any holy books out there that that were named for women. Women, you know, didn't have any rights back in these days. And yet God says, no, 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 no. I use men and women for my name and for my glory. That's important. That's important. All right, we were in chapters 1 and 2 last week. Quick summary. If you're taking notes, just a quick review. Xerxes is the king of Persia. All right, so when it mentions Xerxes, we're going to see that in a minute. He's the king of Persia. The Jews were conquered by the Babylonians, 605 B.C., taken off into exile. People like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys, taken off. 586, the temple is destroyed. Just like Jeremiah had said, if we're disobedient to God, we're going to be taken off into exile for 70 years. The Babylonians then are defeated by the Persians. So Cyrus comes in as the king who defeats the Babylonians, and he allows the Jews to return back in 539 B.C. and rebuild the temple in 516 B.C., exactly 70 years, just like Jeremiah had said. So some Jews stayed in Persia. Instead of going back to Jerusalem, a lot of people went back. Some stayed. Esther stayed. Notice this. Esther wins this beauty contest, and she becomes the queen of Persia. All right, it was actually more like the bachelor, right? Okay, she won the bachelor. She gets the rose at the end. She becomes the queen. So how crazy is that? I mean, here's this young Jewish girl who becomes the queen over all of Persia, and she's sitting there on her queen throne right there in Persia. Esther doesn't tell anyone that she's a Jew, all right? So nobody knows, right, when she wins this contest that she is a Jew. Mordecai is Esther's relative who raised her and who serves in the palace. So Mordecai you know, Esther's mom and dad die. Mordecai, who is a Jew living there in Susa, working at the palace, he takes her, raises her as his own, pours into her, gives her a spiritual foundation, says, hey, you're a Jew, you're a part of the people of God. And he pours into her, does a great job, Mordecai. And then Mordecai, at the end of chapter two, exposes a plot to assassinate the king. That's gonna be significant in the next couple of weeks that Mordecai stands up, exposes this plot, and that leads us to chapter three. So chapter three and four, man, this is, this is incredible. So just kind of dial with us here right now. It says in, verse, in chapter three, verse one, after these events, so it's been four years since Esther became the queen. Four years since Esther became the queen. King Xerxes honored Haman, Sedahamadatha, the Agaik, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So this guy Haman becomes the chief of staff, okay? So he's kind of put over all the nobles, all the people in the palace. And it says that he's an Agagite, which is back, if you go back to like 1 Samuel, there was the king Agag, which was a part of the Amalekites. 
And the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. The Amalekites didn't let them pass through. So there's this tension between the Amalekites and the Israelites, okay? So Haman is a part of that heritage. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Now notice Haman doesn't even know what's going on, right? I mean, there's so many officials. He's just going, but all of these guys who are around Mordecai are like, dude, everybody else is bowing. Why aren't you bowing? You know, why aren't you bowing down to this guy, worshiping this guy? And he's like, I'm not, okay? Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Now, he told Esther, don't tell anybody you're a Jew, but when they ask him and say, hey, why aren't you worshiping this guy? He's like, I'm a Jew. I don't do that, right? I'm a people of God. Well, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So skip to verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So Haman, you know, they're meeting, they're having kind of their staff meeting, and he says to the king, hey, there's this whole group of people out there who aren't doing it the way we're doing it. I think we ought to get rid of these people. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So Haman comes along and says, hey, king, here's what I'll do. And Haman was probably a wealthy guy. I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, that was a lot of money back then, okay? I mean, historians tell us that was probably half of what it took to run the kingdom for an entire year. So that's like six months, right? I mean, that's a lot of money. And King Xerxes is just coming off, you know, getting routed by the Greeks. You remember 300? You remember Thermopylae, that battle, the Spartans? So he's gotten run back, probably hurting for cash, and he's like, hey, okay, you know, there's a lot of money there. And, and Haman's thinking, hey, we take out the Jews, we plunder them, we get their goods, I'll pay it off. So the king took out his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hadatha, the Agagagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, of the, the royal secretaries were summoned. And they wrote out a script of each province and in the language of the peoples of Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles and the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Okay, let me stop just for a second. Verse 12 and verse 7, you can kind of put it together that we know that this took place on April 17th, 474 B.C. All right, so April 17th, two days away right? Two days away. It's tax day for us. Just a reminder, heads up, if you haven't done your taxes, you better get on it, okay? But two days away, April 17th, for us, tax day is a tough day, right? We don't, we don't like taxes. But just imagine back then, there was a decree that was issued exactly 2,492 years ago. A decree was issued that all the Jews would die. And dispatch, 
verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Okay, so that's going to be March 7th, 473 B.C. So exactly 11 months later. So they sent this decree out that says, in 11 months, it's going to take us time to get all the provinces, but in 11 months, on one day, we want all the Jews to be annihilated. And you're just thinking, that's just pure evil. I mean, you look at that, you're like, women, little children, kill them all. You're just thinking, how in the world could that happen? And you think, wow, it wasn't only but 80 years ago that you had Hitler. He killed six million Jews in the Holocaust. If we don't know history, we're destined to repeat it, right? And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. You're just thinking, what? How evil? I mean, they sit down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Everybody in the city is like, what, what are you doing? There's are great people. They're our neighbors. They're our co-workers. What, what are you doing? And these guys are just over here getting drunk, just like they did in chapter 1, right? What is happening? Well, when Mordecai, chapter 4, learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. So Mordecai, who's a Jew, right, who raised Esther, Mordecai, who works in the palace, finds out about this, and he tears his clothes. Now, back in the Old Testament, that was kind of a symbol of grief, extreme anguish. He would just put on sackcloth and put ashes on your head. And you can read in the Old Testament different times that happened. Well, Mordecai does this, and he was in such great distress it says, but he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. So he normally worked there in the palace, but he, since he's in sackcloth, he can't go. He stops at the king's gate. And in every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and the eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. So they come and they say, hey, Esther, your, your dad, he's out there, right? And he's in sackcloth. She's like, what? He's in sackcloth. He's got ashes on his head. She's like, oh, no, what's going on? She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. She's like, hey, dad, you're causing a scene. Hey, put on these clothes. Come in. We'll talk about it. We'll get it worked out. What's going on? Then Esther, right? But he wouldn't put it on. He wouldn't accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. So Mordecai knows the exact amount. I mean, maybe he's the CFO, maybe he's running, you know, in the finance department or something, but he knows the exact amount. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go to the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. 
Hattach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. So he's like, hey, take this note back to Esther and tell Esther, listen, all the Jews are going to be annihilated. You go talk to the king. You go tell the king. And he goes back and he tells her. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, right? The law of the Medes and the Persians can't be repealed, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Esther's like, Mordecai, I don't know what you want me to do. I can't go see the king. If I walk in there, I will be killed. He will take me out, right? It's a law. And I haven't even seen him for 30 days. Well, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, she sent back this answer. Now, I love this guy, Mordecai. I gotta tell you, man, this guy is wise. He sends back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Did, did you get that? Mordecai's like, listen, Esther. Listen, listen, listen. Don't think you're going to escape this either. But just so you know, my faith isn't just in you. If you don't step up, God's going to bring deliverance from somewhere else. My faith is in God. My faith is in him. And I know he's going to come through. And then I love this. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Wow. He's like, Esther, do you, you think it was just a fluke that you got to be queen? What if God in his sovereignty was ordering things so that you're queen for such a time as this? Right here, right now. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. <laughs> wow. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Guys, if you're taking notes, here's some things. I want you to write them down. Just a summary, quick summary. Haman is made the chief of staff for Xerxes. We're going to see this in the next couple of weeks. But this, this guy right here is just, just pure evil. Mordecai will not bow down and worship Haman, right? Mordecai's like, no, everybody else is going to bow down. I'm not doing it. Haman conceives this plan to destroy all of the Jews because of Mordecai. So he's like, I'm going to take out all the Jews, everyone in the entire realm, the Persian Empire. Mordecai finds out about Haman's plans and asks Esther to intervene with the king. Esther must choose. She must choose to put her life on the line in order to save her people. She's got a choice to make. Are heroes born or are they made? What decision would you make? If you're taking notes today too, here's some life lessons from just chapters three and four. First of all is this, worship only God. Worship only God. Mordecai had to make a decision, right? He's got a big job. He's in the king's palace. He's living a good life. But everybody else is bowing down and worshiping this guy. And Mordecai's got to decide, what am I going to do? 
I'm a Jew, right? And the number one commandment, right? Number one commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Worship only God. See, here's the thing. Mordecai and Esther were living in a pagan culture. And so are we. Guys, this world's not our home. It's not. And for all of us, there's going to be decisions that we have to make about what we worship. What do we worship? What do we worship here in this culture? And everybody else may be running a different way. Everybody else may be doing something. But we've got to make a decision. What do you worship? Now, how do you define worship? Well, worship is where you give your time, your money, your attention. That's going to start to kind of bring into focus what you worship. And there's things in our culture that aren't bad things. But there's things in our culture that can quickly become worship. People can worship a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And their whole faith and their trust is in them. And man, that relationship, that's got, I'm going to hang on to that. People can worship a job or a career. People can worship money. You know what? I'm going to bow down because, hey, listen, I might lose my job. And if I lose the money, whoo, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not worried about God taking care of me, but it's really money that takes care of me. Some people worship sports. Some people worship other people. You know, what do you worship? Mordecai had a decision to make. We've got decisions to make. And God calls us to worship him. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Is our faith in him or in the things around us? Here's life lesson number two. In life, you will have conflict. In life, you will have, not, none of us like conflict, right? There's some people, oh, yeah, I just hate conflict. I'm gonna step back at conflict. But, but here's the thing, you're gonna have conflict. We're, there's gonna be conflict. But notice this, it wasn't Mordecai who was initiating. Mordecai did not try to upstage Haman. He just won't worship Haman. He didn't try to upstage him. He's just not gonna worship him. Right, and sometimes, you, you know, you have this boss and you're just like, I don't agree with him and, and you can get like, I'm gonna pick a fight here, I'm gonna start this. No, 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 no. That's not our job or our call. But we have to understand that we live in a world where there's gonna be pushback. We have to understand that there's gonna be people who say things on social media. How are we gonna respond? Here's what Romans 12, eight says. If it is possible, 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now notice this. If it is possible, sometimes it's not. <laughs> but if it is possible, and as far as it depends on you, right, as believers, we're not out there trying to hit people over the head with the Bible. We're not, you know, trying to pick a fight there. You know, people have done that back through history, and it's like never works out well. No, 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 no. We live at peace. We love all people. We know people are going to be different. We love, we love, we love, we love, we serve. But there is going to be conflict. And it takes conflict in order to have heroes. It takes conflict in order to have heroes. You know, heroes have to step up or step out when the conflict comes. Here's life lesson number three. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christ follower, you will be persecuted for your faith. I mean, Jesus said it. Uh, you're gonna be persecuted in some way, some form, some fashion for your faith. Haman goes to the king and says, hey, these people live in a different way. They have different rules. They follow different things, right? If you're a Christ follower, you know, we talk about forgiveness. We talk about grace. We talk about generosity. We talk about love. That is countercultural to the world. Being a people of God is counter to the world. 
It is. I mean, the world is selfish. The world is what's in it for me. The world is doing anything to anybody at all costs to further my name. That is not who we are. So there's going to be persecution that's going to happen. Jesus even said this. If you're a follower of mine, you'll be persecuted. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have to look at our lives sometimes and we have to say, if I'm not getting any pushback, maybe I'm not living it. That doesn't mean that there's going to be huge persecution. We got brothers and sisters in the world who literally put their lives on the line to go to church. I mean, there's people in different countries. I mean, in China or in Egypt, different places who are going to church today and they're not fighting the rain. They're coming in to worship and they don't know whether a soldier is going to come in and they're going to be arrested and taken off into jail. But they're like, well, I'm going to be at church. I'm going to study the word. I'm going to, I'm going to put it on the line. I, I might have to endure persecution and persecution is deeper than conflict. Conflict is out here, but when you're being targeted for what you believe. But there will be small things that we're all going to have to face. People may say to you, you know, why do you raise your kids that way? No, everybody else does that. Why do you go to church? Well, why do you pray before meals? Why do you want to be baptized? I mean, shouldn't you have done that when you were younger? I mean, why? Why do you want to go on a mission trip? A lady in our church, her, her parents who aren't believers called and was giving her a hard time because she was signed up to go to Moldova last year on a mission trip. And they're saying, what are you thinking? You can't leave your kids for five days or six days and go somewhere across the world. You can't do that. We can't take care of your kids for you to go do that. She was like, well, you took care of them last year when we went on a cruise. I mean, you know, I mean what, what, there's always this pushback, right? There's this push. There's a guy in our church, and he was telling me a couple years ago, he was in Vegas, had a work meeting. And they were there, they were at a conference, things were good, and his boss was taking them all to dinner, and they're sitting there at dinner, a bunch of guys having a great time, and, and the boss at the end of the meal goes, hey guys, listen, well, I got us tickets, we're all going to a strip club tonight. So go back, change clothes, and we're all heading over there. And guy goes, I sat there, I was just like, uh, and he goes, you know what, I'm not going. And they're like, what? He goes, I'm a Christian, uh, I, I just don't do that. I don't go anywhere that I can't tell my wife where I'm going. You guys have a good time. I'm heading back. And he goes, I walked back to my hotel room and I was like, I don't know if I'm getting fired tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen. He goes, but I knew it was the right thing to do. About 45 minutes later, it was a knock on the door. He opened it up at his hotel room and it was his boss. And his boss looked at him and he goes, hey man, you made us all feel so guilty. None of us went, you know, so we're all here. So... (laughs) He's like, well, come on in. And they came on in. He talked about Jesus for about 45 minutes with his boss, you know. But I'm saying that there is going to be some kind of persecution that's going to come. I mean, why do you go to church? I mean, why? And we just have to understand that we live in a world. You're in this world, right? There's going to be people who are going to push back on that. Why do you raise your kids this way? Why do you pour into them? And that's okay. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Mordecai, man, he took a stand. I'm going to take a stand. We have to take a stand sometimes. What are some ways that we're persecuted for our faith in Christ today? What are some ways? Number four is this. It takes bravery to be a hero. Guys, it takes bravery to be a hero. You know, at some point in our lives, every one of us, there's going to be a defining point. We've got to step up. And at some point, we've got to say, you know what, I'm living for Jesus or I'm living for the world. Esther has a choice to make. 
Esther's got a sweet deal. Let's be honest. She's the queen. She's getting the ultimate spa package every day. She's got attendants. She's getting massages, manicure, pedicure. She's got the whole thing going on. And Mordecai comes along and says, hey, listen, there's a whole plot to kill all of us. And Esther's got to decide. I kind of like this queen thing. <laughs> or am I going to step up and say, whoa, 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 wait. And I love when Mordecai says, man, you got a decision to make. But even if you don't make it, God's going to deliver us. God is with us. God is for us. See, faith requires risk. Faith requires risk. Some people want to just live a comfortable Christian life. Like, yeah, it's just a, I'm telling you, at some point, you've got to live a committed Christian life. And there's going to be some risk there. It's sometimes risky to have that spiritual conversation. Sometimes you invite somebody to church, you're not sure how they're going to go, or what they're going to say. You're not sure if you can say to a coworker, hey, can I pray for you or pray with you? You're not sure if your kids, you know, hey, how are they going to respond to this email or this text? Hey, what are they going to do? But it takes risk to step into those places. And the question becomes for all of us, are you going to live by fear or by faith? Are you going to live by fear or are you going to live by faith? God, you put me here. God, you've got a plan and a purpose. I think for Mordecai, you know, we see it shift right here, right? Mordecai has raised Esther, and he's poured into her. I mean, he's taught her. He's taught her the Old Testament, right? He's taught her who she is. He's taught her the Torah, right? He's taught her these things. And now he's seeing her kind of start to step up, and she sends his word back. Okay, Mordecai, you go, and you tell your people to fast and pray. Get your friends together. I'm going to get the maids together. We're going to fast, and then we're going to see what God tells me to do. She starts to call shots. If you're a parent, isn't it amazing when you start to see your kids make good decisions? When you listen to them sometimes when they pray and you're just like, oh, that's awesome. They're starting to get it. They're starting to get it. They're starting to live it. And you see that. I think Mordecai's watching her and he's going, okay, she's starting to live by faith. She's doing it. She hasn't just bought into the culture. She's not just going, okay, this is all about me, pamper me. She's starting to go, no, no, no. Maybe there's a reason for this. And here's the last one. This is your time. Guys, this is your time. Mordecai says to her, hey, Esther, what if you became queen for such a time as this? Have you ever thought about why were you born at this time in history? I mean, you look back and you go, I could have been born really. I mean, God could have brought me in the world at any point, at any time. Why now? I'm thankful for now, right? I'm thankful we got air conditioning and car. I mean, I'm thankful for now, but it's easy to get caught up in all that, right? See, you were born at this time in history for a reason and a purpose. You were born at this time in history for a reason and for a purpose. And there will come a time for every one of us when you have to make a decision. Am I going to live it for the glory of God or am I just going to go along with the world? Am I going to live it for him or am I going to go along with the world? How is God calling you to take a stand for him in your day, in your generation? Here's the thing. Nobody else, nobody else can be dad to your kids. It's your time. It's your responsibility. From mom to your kids, to raise up the next generation. God put you here at this church for a reason, for a purpose. God put you in your workplace for a reason, for a purpose. God put you in your neighborhood for a reason, for a purpose. And we can easily get caught up in culture and just kind of ride out our days. 
But I love where Esther comes back to say, you know what? If I perish, I perish. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to make a stand. And whatever that means. Guys, there's worse things than dying. I mean, we're all going to die at some point, right? I mean, none of us want to think about it. And we pray it's a long, long, long time away. But, 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 but there's worse things. Like missing our calling. Or our purpose. Or living for the wrong things. And this is that defining moment where you watch a hero be made, where you watch somebody step up and say, I'm gonna use the gifts and the talents and the position, the abilities that God's given me to further his kingdom and not simply my own. I'm gonna stand when everybody else may bow. But what about you and what about me? God's calling us and this is our day. What will we do? I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. I don't know where you are today. I really don't. But God does. And maybe today you could just look at your life and you go, man, I feel this battle, this struggle. I feel like I'm at war. It's like trying to live for the world versus living for God. But today I just want to put a stake in the ground and say, God, I want to be yours. Holy and completely yours. Because God, I know you love me. You have the best for me. You believe in me. You created me, God, and you put me here for this time. God, I want to live my life for you. Maybe you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ. That's the most important decision you'll ever make. God has drawn you to himself and for you to say, God, thank you. Here's my life. I want to put my faith in you and not a money or success or job or positions or another person, but you and you alone. Jesus, be the Lord of my life, the Lord of my heart. Maybe today God's calling you to, to take a stand in your family or with a coworker, in your neighborhood. And there's a fear that comes over. And today you go, I'm going to live by faith. I'm not going to let fear control me anymore. I want to be the man or the woman God created me to be. I want to be the father and the mother, the grandparent God created me to be. I don't want to miss it. I want to live it for God's name, for God's glory. And so, Father, here we are, your disciples. And you are molding us, you're shaping us, you're preparing us, Father. And Father, I pray when that time comes that we would step up and step out. That when everybody else would bow, Father, that we would stand. That we would be people of love, grace. That we'd be people who pour into the things that matter and that impact eternity. So Father, thank you that you are here, that you are present. And thank you that you have called us for a time such as this. We commit it to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. After the service, I'm going to be here. There'll be people on our staff, our pastoral care team. And love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life. And God has called you. And God brought you here today to hear from him. And God has blessed you and put you where you are to use what he's given you for his name and for his glory. Your platform, your position, your gifts, your talents, your abilities. And we get to do that together, the church, 
the body of Christ, locking arms, supporting one another, believing in one another, praying for one another. Man, that's community.